I always say the difference between a programming language and databases is one's a hash table, the other one's a B tree. <laughs> Obviously, the differences are bigger than that. But, you know, I'm a system person. So speeds and feeds and really thinking about how to optimize services and products so customers can get the best price performance and, and the best user experience, I think really matters. One thing that I have brought into kind of my view of databases is that developer background that I have, which is both, you know, the number one persona using our services are are developers. And so we need to make it super productive and simple and easy and fun for developers to use. UiPath offers a platform for automation combining robotic process automation, RPA, with a full suite of capabilities like AI. Developers of all ranks are building upon the UiPath Community Edition. Expand your tech suite. Learn with UiPath Academy at academy.uipath.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. We have a very exciting episode for you today, and I am joined, as I often am, by two of my wonderful co-hosts, Ryan Donovan and Cassidy Williams. Hi, y'all. Hello. Hey, Ben. So it's not every day we get to talk to folks who help to create one of the programming languages that have made a big impact and used by a lot of people. Today, we're going to have a great guest, Andy Gutmans, who works at Google on the database side. He's a GM and VP in engineering over there, and also was kind of important in the creation of PHP or in its early creation. So yeah, we're excited to have him on. Ryan, I know you have strong feelings about PHP, but I'm going to ask you to <laughs> just wait. Just just hold on tight. It's not me. Okay. It's, not, it's me. not you, right. It's the listeners. Andy, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So Andy, the first thing we always do, just so folks can get acquainted, tell them a little about who you are, You know, quick flyover, personal background, how you got started in programming, and yeah, what it is you do sort of day-to-day right now. So I'm Andy Goodmans, you know, just personal life. I'm married, three children and a dog. Uh, that was kind of the compromise with my wife. I wanted four, she wanted two, and, you know, <laughs> we got three plus one. I'm Swiss-born, British mother, moved to Israel when I was 10, and then moved to the U.S. about 17 years ago. So I'm quad citizen. Wow. You know, I've always been dabbling with uh, computers since I was a you know pretty young kid in Switzerland. I probably started to do a bit of programming, I would say, kind of in middle school to junior high, but really just, you know, simple stuff like basic and so on. But when I was a freshman in high school, that's when I took a Pascal class. And I'd say that's when I really got into programming. That was on an Apple IIc, if uh, oh, any of you folks uh, remember that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm dating myself here. But, you know, Pascal was a beautiful language. And I really, you know, started getting into development there. I was also extremely curious. And, you know, curiosity is something that stayed with me ever since. And, and I always look to work with curious folks. So if you remember back then, you had like the Norton Utilities and they did all kinds of funky things like indexing your hard drive and uh, defragmenting your hard drive. And they were even able to do kind of a, a smooth mouse cursor in the text, you know, ASCII environment. And so that, that curiosity, having also learned Pascal, I just started to try and replicate, you know, different things that I was seeing. Not very successfully. I would say I could never quite build the, the defragmenter or so on. <laughs> but I just, you know, a lot of my friends were playing video games at the time and I was coding. It's just something I really like doing. 
you mentioned you sort of thought of Pascal as a beautiful language. So let me ask you a two-part question. One, what about it was beautiful? What attracted you to it? And then two, let's segue from there into your work on PHP, how you got involved in that and sort of in yeah, creating what we know of that language today. You know, I think Pascal was just, it was really well structured. It was really clear how to build things, you know, as you kind of in your, you know, I was early on in my developer career, had to build things like, you know, binary trees and so on for the fun of it, you know, kind of how pointers worked in Pascal and so on was just, you know, very elegant. Uh, and I would say relatively, er- you know, error proof, right? So it's just something I really like doing. When I went to university, it was kind of interesting because I suddenly discovered that most of what you actually study is math and physics and not computer programming. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I was, I was a bit bummed out. I was a pretty bad student. <laughs> it took me about four and a half years to finish my three-year degree. And I think that was really, that ended up being my excuse to actually code more. And so one of the things that me and uh, my partner called Zev Suraski, we were trying to get extra credit projects because we didn't like the math and physics as much. So we said, why don't we get some coding projects? So one of the professors, and this was back in 1997, I said, like, why didn't you go and build a shopping cart? And right now you've got lots of off-the-shelf software you can download. But back then that was a real like novel thing. And so we actually started to build a shopping cart and we found this awesome language called PHPFI, which actually my partner had been using when working for an ISP. And we really liked the idea of the language, but we saw the language was, wasn't was robust. And we looked under the covers, we looked at the source code, and we saw it wasn't really built by someone who had a computer science background. And we had just finished our compiler course. So we basically felt like, hey, we could do this better. We put our shopping cart project aside, and we started to rewrite this language. And that's what ended up becoming PHP 3. Wow. Uh, so we basically used our compiler course kind of knowledge built PHP 3, went back to the person who wrote PHP FI, said, why don't you move kind of that community over to us? And then PHP 3 is really what made PHP take off. We went from about, I think, 30,000 users in the world to about a million and a half within 18 months. Wow. So that was really exciting. We went back to our professor of the shopping cart and asked <laughs> her, you know, how about you also take this as a second project? And she was like, no, no, that's not interesting to me. You just go and do your shopping cart. <laughs> <laughs> we, we went to our compiler course uh, professor and he loved the idea. So he actually mentored us while we were working on it. We worked on it night and day. So our grades went down even even more. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have time to study. But that's what ended up becoming PHP 3. And frankly, just before we launched PHP 3, we looked at, a, at, at the work we had done and we're like, we really didn't do such a good job. We could have done this way better. <laughs> and then just as we announced PHP 3, we actually started to work on the Zend engine. Zend stands for Zev and Andy. I'm the Andy. That's actually <laughs> the, the runtime for PHP 4 and beyond. So that's kind of, you know, that kind of just this kind of curiosity, you know, continuous uh, improvement kind of psychology uh, just made us continue to try and uh, make things better for our users. Wow. That's amazing to do that as a college student. As an extra credit mm. assignment. And it's wild to think that also, as a side note, that 1997 was 25 years ago. That was the mm-hmm. origin of all this. Don't remind me. Yeah, don't, re- don't remind me how old I am. <laughs> yeah. And so when this sort of high velocity moment came, you saw it go from 30,000 users to you know over a million. Were there specific problems, you think, at that time in 97 or so that it was solving for people? Were there things that it could do that other languages or frameworks couldn't? What do you think uh, drove a lot of that adoption? 
a few things drove the adoption. You know, first of all, it was a very easy language to pick up. And that's actually one of the things that attracted us, you know, to it in the beginning. You could come from C, you could come from basic, you know, you could come from Pascal, you can come from almost any background, both developer and non-developer. And it was very easy to pick up. The second thing that happened was as we built PHP 3, we built this extension API and also integrated it more closely with like MySQL and some of the other databases and other technologies. And so what users really valued about PHP was that out of the box, it had like instant connectivity to, to MySQL, to MSQL, if you still remember that. And, and so that kind of instant gratification was really significant. And then we also made it, you know, we kind of designed it for the web. So a lot of things like input and output in a, in a web context was just incredibly easy with PHP. So it really helped both the developers and the non-developers dabble in web and build web applications. And so companies like Yahoo and Facebook and kind of that whole generation of, you know, organizations actually picked up PHP and, you know, built some really cool businesses. Something I read is, is that 70% of websites today are built on PHP. So it's still got a lasting effect. It's, it's a huge amount. And, you know, part of what's obviously driving those numbers are, you know, products like WordPress, Drupal, Magento, right? A lot of these out-of-the-box, you know, packaged apps. PHP, I'd say we have so many languages right now, right on the web, like you know, PHP, Python, mm-hmm. uh, Node, and so on. So I'd say it's not as popular as it was back then. I mean, back then, really, everyone was using it. But still, it's, uh, I would say, the workhorse of the web and still driving <laughs> a lot of you know, what you're seeing today. Are you still involved in the uh, development? I'm not anymore. I've become too busy. <laughs> but I, you know, I do look at the like, internals mailing list once in a while, and I, I, try, and still, I try and keep up. But mm-hmm. I'm just not successful at it anymore. I know it, it gets uh, a fair bit of flack these days from in our developer survey. And some of my friends were like, oh, PHP. But I have a pet theory that it's because PHP is, is in a lot of kind of brownfield development. Like it's in a lot of existing products. So you have to deal with other people's code. And all the languages people love are on greenfield projects. I think that's one point. I think the other thing we realized was because PHP was so approachable, you had a lot of non-developers actually writing applications in PHP. Right. You know, hence you got a lot of not great code and not secure code. It was actually it was part of this. This was also the kind of personas who were using PHP, which you know we ultimately saw as a success because we kind of democratized development. Mm. Right. But on the flip side, it also led to, you know, quite a bit of not great code out there. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of philosophy around, you know, programming languages. And, <laughs> you know, I'm a C developer. I'm not a PHP developer myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think PHP obviously made a huge impact. I think it enabled it was, you know, the first language lots of people picked up. But I think there's a lot of other great languages out there today. And if there's anything I've learned is you know, great developers these days pick up lots of different languages and use the right tool for the job. Yeah. A friend of mine works at Wikipedia and, and she was saying that sometimes when she's hiring, people are just like, oh, PHP. And she's like, you don't get it. The bad PHP is really bad, but the good PHP is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's exactly what you're saying. You can actually write beautiful PHP. Like you can write like object-oriented, great frameworks, very secure like PHP today does enable very professional development. Also from a performance perspective, it's probably the fastest dynamic language out there, if not one of the fastest. 
But I think it is a bit of that perception, like you say. Right, yeah. Which is that there was a lot of bad code out there. So as a result, right. you know. <laughs> it happens with age, too. Sometimes right. sometimes good yeah. code today is going to be really terrible code tomorrow. You, you never know. I, I don't think I want to look at the code that I wrote, you know, back no. then. No. <laughs> <laughs> now that you're focused on databases and, and stuff, speaking of new languages, what what's your tech stack now? Are you still very deep into C or do you dabble with other ones? So luckily, we have folks who write much better code than I do. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I don't really write code anymore, although, you know, I can still read code. But I would say the tech stack, you know, at Google, there's definitely, you know, a lot of C++, really. We build a lot of high-performance systems, so I'd say that's probably the the number one. Then you have, you know, other things like Golang and, and other languages. You know, in my prior role when I was at Amazon, there was a lot more Java also, in addition to things like C++. But, you know, I think I think in all these projects, uh, you kind of end up using the best tool for the job. And we also give flexibility to development teams, you know, within reason, right? These have to be languages that have good ecosystems or secure, have good talent uh, pool around them. But, you know, I think um, teams have quite a bit of flexibility on how they want to build their services. So, yeah, let's let's back up for a second there. We were talking a bunch about creating php was that then a career for you or were you working simultaneously wise trying to like build and, and maintain this so i started a startup uh, in the php space in parallel to working on open source called zend zend technologies that was kind of the the php company and so you know what kind of red hat is to linux we were to php and we also built uh, you know we both built open source software we also had some proprietary products like zend server which was doing apm and ci cd we co-founded a company and we ended up selling that company in 2015. So really, you know, once we sold the company, then it was kind of time for me to do something else. And I like to, I'm very curious, as I said before, and I like getting myself out of my comfort zone. So I ended up going to databases <laughs> uh, and I had to learn databases from scratch. And that was a lot of fun. And so you did that first, you went from right selling the startup, you, you went to work at Amazon. When I read it, it said, yeah, you, you were sort of interested in the cloud, but it was always databases that, that sort of pulled at you and that's what you did there. Yeah, because even in my in the company I ran, Zen, we were doing quite a bit of cloud already. We were supporting AWS and Azure and GCP. So we, we kind of did a lot of cloud, but I was always building the connectors to the databases or the APM tools kind of inspect the databases, never the database itself. Mm-hmm. And so there was this interesting opportunity at Amazon to go and build a new graph database, which was really exciting. And it was like five folks in a garage. And I had just <laughs> been done with, you know, the very uh, difficult 10 months of trying to sell, you know, having your company sold. And that was a difficult uh, experience. It was a decent outcome in the end, but it wasn't an easy journey. And so going back to five folks in a garage was really just a great opportunity. Uh, plus, I had to learn how to build a database really quickly. So that was a lot of fun. And then I also very quickly started to do additional things like, you know, Redis and Memcache and Elasticsearch. And, and then I went into analytics. So I, I got a pretty good education just on the various both operational databases and analytical databases. And that was a lot of fun. I always say the difference between a programming language and databases is One's a hash table, the other one's a B tree. <laughs> Obviously, the differences are bigger than that. But, you know, I'm a system per- person, so speeds and feeds and really thinking about how to optimize services and products so customers can get the best price performance and, and the best user experience, I think really matters. 
One thing that I have brought into kind of my view of databases is that developer background that I have, which is both, you know, the number one persona using our services are our developers. And so we need to make it super productive and simple and easy and fun for developers to use. And so that's something that's always been a guiding principle for me. Yeah, I feel like developer experience is something that like we've always cared about generally in the tech industry, but it's definitely being highlighted more as more and more dev tools are being built and optimized and developers are your customers and they have a very specific set of needs compared to your average consumer. What's your job title again, Cassidy? Head of developer experience. (laughs) (laughs) So Andy, yeah, I guess I'd like to focus a little bit on what you're doing now and what excites you. But if you feel like you can do this without offending anyone, tell us a little bit about, yeah, like having worked in a startup, having worked at Amazon, having worked at Google, you know, how would you describe those experiences? Like from somebody who went from being a very hands-on developer and somebody who obviously loves to code, loves languages, being somebody, as you said now, who's more in management, what would you say are the sort of differences between those those different experiences in your life and what did you take away from them? That's a great question. You know, let me talk about the similarity and kind of what I look for, right? Like I, I always look for the startup. Like for me, it's about, you know, being very customer centric, really figuring out how we can make the biggest impact on customers. And then how do you build an awesome team uh, that has high judgment, has great technical skills, and, you know, you're able to build something very innovative, right? That not only makes customer impact, but really makes industry impact. And I think when I look at the work, you know, I did in my startup, the Amazon work, the work I'm doing now at Google, I think it all fits in that bucket. So I don't think about it as much as small company, big company. I really think about it as, you know, is there a real opportunity to do something exciting, work with great people, make industry impact? And, you know, I've been very fortunate that kind of in all three places, you know, that's been a yes. I'm super excited about what's happening at Google right now, just because of the, you know, heritage of Google and data and, and a, lot of the inno- a lot of the innovative ways that the systems were built, in, built here. Uh, which I think opens up real opportunity for us to create those differentiated experiences and really make lasting industry impact. I mean, Google itself must store an enormous amount of data, right? Yeah. And I assume Google has built their own databases to handle that? Yeah. So, you know, talking a bit about my role here. So I basically run uh, the operational databases for both GCP and then some of them for Google. Uh, So for Google Cloud, that includes all the managed third parties like uh, Cloud SQL that runs MySQL, Postgres SQL Server, our Oracle offering, Memory Store with Redis and Memcache support, and then also the cloud native databases, which are Spanner, Bigtable, and Firestore. Now, Spanner and Bigtable were actually initially built for Google. So I also operate you know, wow. those versions for Google itself. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at things like Gmail, YouTube, Ads, Search, Nest, all of those are basically running on Spanner and Bigtable. So I really have two jobs. You know, one is the, I would say, outward-facing commercial, like help enterprise customers be successful and transform their businesses. The second one is also keeping Google up. Right. And so that's been very exciting. And I think what gives us a real competitive advantage is some of the innovation that was driven, you know, before my time here, so I can't take credit, to enable <laughs> Google we are now democratizing and enabling external customers, right? To really get those benefits. Because if you take Spanner as an example, there's no other database like it. It's a relational database with global scale. It can do petabyte scale OLTP. 
and the strong, strongly externally consistent. Like there is nothing like it out there. It's five nines available and it truly is that available. There's no other relational database out, out there like that. And so we had to build that for Google because Google had very unique requirements. But now as you're seeing every industry trying to go through digital transformation, right? They have the same problems. They're global businesses. Businesses, never, you know, it's, they have to be on 24-7. They keep on scaling and they want to build for success. And so being able to take something like Spanner with a very low entry point of like $65 a month and being able to scale that to thousands of nodes, petabyte, petabyte scale, like some of our customers like uh, ShareChat and Uber are kind of running, you know, very large scale applications. Yeah, I feel like your point about building it internally and then being able to understand the strengths and take it to the... I don't know if you've ever heard this little product called AWS, but, you know, <laughs> maybe if you'd stuck with that shopping cart project at the beginning, you'd be in a very different position. You could have uh, <laughs> there you built something completely in 1997. We've talked to a lot of people who build databases and handle a lot of data. And it's what I've been realizing the last few years is that there's so many different kinds of databases. I think early when I got into it, it was just like MySQL, maybe MS SQL if you want to pay for it. And now there's so many specific purpose-built databases. Can you talk about why that is and, and what the sort of landscape looks like? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I think there's different points of view in that, right? So you, you can look at, you know, a company like AWS that takes a very kind of purpose-built database approach, right, and has one of everything. Mm-hmm. You can look at Azure, you know, who basically, you know, tries to do multi-model, not very successfully, in my opinion. But, but, you know, they kind of take a multi-model approach. I would say, you know, at Google, we're kind of the pragmatists. Like, we don't want to confuse customers with too many options, but we also think, like, having too few options isn't the right answer either. And so I think kind of, you know, it ultimately goes back to how do you make sure developers are super productive, right, have an easy experience, but can also build for scale. And so that's where, you know, I would say we're, trying to take a pragmatic approach and really appeal to, you know, two areas. One is the lift and shift migrations. And by the way, according to Gartner, 75% of databases will be in the cloud this year, and that's 50% by revenue. Dang. So imagine, you know, 40 years of putting expensive proprietary Oracle SQL Server DB2 on-premises. This year, basically, the majority of revenue is actually in the cloud. And so there's a lot of focus on just making it super easy for developers to get their MySQLs and SQL servers and Postgres, you know, lifted and shifted into the cloud and just give them that right landing spot so they can actually start their innovation journey from there. So that, I would say, is the first piece. The second one that is kind of more directed to the question you're asking is, you know, right now we have three offerings that are very unique. They're all five nines of availability, very, very scalable, right? You have Spanner, which is relational. Bigtable, which is really a wide column key value store, and then Firestore, which is a document database. We've kind of, you know, right now landed on three as opposed to eight, because we do want to make it relatively, you know, a bit easier for developers to kind of figure out what to use. And we do think the majority of use cases can be addressed by the databases we offer. Plus, we have great partners like MongoDB and Neo4j that we work super closely with you know, to kind of optimize, you know, their runtimes also on GCP. You know, never say never. I mean, we're constantly thinking about, you know, is there anything else we need to do to enable developers? But I would say we're trying to meet this balance of not being too complex and also not too simple. 
And I think that's what makes GCP, you know, pretty powerful place to go because we have very differentiated offerings, but we also create an easy onboarding journey onto those offerings. I feel like with a lot of things in tech, there's like a pendulum where people start going to an extreme extreme of one way and then swing the other way and stuff. Do you see there ever being a swing back away from cloud? Is is cloud just, I do think it's here to stay, but do you ever see reasons for people to have more on-prem solutions? It's a great question. I would say we're definitely, I do think, you know, longer term, you know, there is a bit of a disaggregation, right, happening on two dimensions. One is just over 80% of enterprise customers use more than one cloud, right? And so when you ask, hey, hey, what's the opportunity for GCP and why am I here? It's because I think there's, <laughs> there's a huge opportunity because pretty much every enterprise customer is going to have a second cloud and we're extremely differentiated on data, both on databases, analytics, and AI and ML. And so I think, you know, a lot of those workloads are ultimately going to come to GCP. So there is kind of already, you know, it's going to be more than a single cloud game. The second thing is as you're seeing more, um, you know, just kind of more edge computing, you know, IoT, mm. data sovereignty, and so on and so forth. I mean, we're definitely seeing some additional disaggregation of workloads into different areas. So I do think the pendulum keeps on swinging a bit. I don't think the momentum around like the big hyperscalers is going gonna, is gonna to go down. I think there's going to be an additive piece where you're going to see additional edge compute, 5G and so on. That makes sense. It's going to basically, it will need a cloud to operate, but you're going to see some of this being pushed to the edge. I think that's a really interesting question, Cassidy. I mean, I think kind of as Andy was saying, there are sort of these outliers now that might themselves grow to really scale. We talked to another, I think it was an Israeli startup and they do like smart car cameras and they process everything first locally at the edge they extract stuff that could be personally identifiable, you know, PI, and then they send it up to the cloud. So they are doing a lot of work sort of on the hardware. You know, I know Google still has tape storage for everything. And we just had a, a big discussion with some folks at this company, Rewind. And it's like, for all the companies that are cloud native and their developers just work in, you know, some kind of Git platform and then everything is stored everywhere, you know, take a close look at the terms of service. Like if you lose that stuff, it's not backed up for you anywhere. You know, like you have to, at some point, mm -hmm. if you're getting to scale, make that consideration of like, say the cloud goes down or, you know, it gets corrupted in some way. What am I going to fall back on to make sure I can rebuild my business? And by the way, just on your point, I mean, if you think about how powerful, right, just your mobile phone is. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so much memory and CPU there. You know, it's a lot ridiculous. of this, like, <laughs> yeah, like AI and ML, like inferencing and so on. I mean, a lot of this is going to get pushed into the cameras and to, into other places on the edge. And, they, they, they will be cloud connected, of course, but there's just a huge amount of compute that's being built, right, at the edge. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. We are going to offer up some recommendations of things you should check out, as well as shout out the winner of a Lifeboat badge. So a Lifeboat badge came on Stack Overflow, found a question with a score of negative three or less, got it up to a score of three or more, and an answer score of 20 or more. Awarded seven hours ago to Lee J. Schmidt, how do I display the index of a list element in Python? All right, if you always wanted to know, we have the answer for you. My shout out this week will be 3D printing. I used to cover this all the time in like the 2010 era, and then I forgot about it. Like, I don't know if you remember MakerBot and everything like that. I never yeah, had any still use. still thriving. Still thriving. Well, as I found <laughs> out. 
3D printing is still thriving. And now I have a son who's obsessed with painting miniature models and you can print mm. totally cut. You can just hop on, download a file, print it, make your own in CAD, throw it on there. So I'm investing in my first 3D printer. And yeah, just it was exciting to see that that space is still alive. I kind of stopped thinking about it, but Cassidy, are you familiar with what's yeah, going I on? Yeah, I have a 3D printer. Like, oh, cool. Let's Maybe you can talk give me some afterwards. Yeah, exactly. we, we can chat. <laughs> okay, <great. laughs> I will recommend something completely at the other end of the spectrum. Pearl de Sol lemon drop candies. Mm. I really like <laughs> lemons and sour candies and stuff in general. And then I decided I would look up what are some good lemon candies besides like <laughs> lemon heads or something. And I discovered these and they're incredible and I highly recommend them. Yeah. And uh, on the snack shout out, uh, we, we just got a box of uh, snacks mm. from oh, Stack. Yeah. Just a shout out Ooh. Snack Overflow. And uh, it was full of uh, stuff I'd never heard of. So I got to try a whole bunch of stuff. Andy, anything you've played with recently, any snacks you've had, any software projects you like, just give us any kind of recommendation. We'll take it. I mean, you know, I'm Swiss born, so I love my lint uh, chocolate hazelnut. <laughs> Excellent chocolate stuff. Hazelnut, and that's, uh, <laughs> you know, every evening I have some of that. Uh, but I think, you know, one of the things I've, I, I've been really excited about is actually kind of upgrading my home to be being a bit more of a smart home. Uh, and mm. so I've been buying a lot of light switches and, and smart dimmers and so on and so forth. And slowly but surely... I'm replacing them in the home and it's just awesome. Like, you know, you can put like timers on when the lights go on and off and the kids love it and it's connected to Alexa. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Are you using one of the ones with like a central hub and everything's connected together or using? Yeah, everything's connected. We don't, well, it actually connects to your Wi-Fi directly. So you don't need any hubs or anything. You just need Wi-Fi. Right. And so I, you know, we turn on and off our lights in our home with voice commands. Nice. And the kids, kids love it. I love it. I, like we, we have ours. I'm not going to say her name because she's behind me and we'll wake up. I'll call her Donna. Uh, we'll say like, Donna, good night or whatever. And then all of our first floor lights will turn off and then our top floor lights will turn on so we can get ready for bed and stuff. It's so nice. So do you use like Philips <laughs> Hue like or different kinds of bulbs or what do you use? I use the TP-Links. They actually have the actual light switches oh, yeah. and light sockets. They're awesome. Not that I want to do an advertisement here, but they're really good. <laughs> they're not too expensive. I, I think our kids' kids are basically not going to know what a light switch is. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. What a concept. But you're probably right. Yeah. All right, everybody. We are going to say goodbye. I am Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me at Ben Popper on Twitter. Email us, podcast at Stack Overflow with questions and suggestions. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. And if you're listening and you don't know yet, we have a whole new crew of hosts. So be sure to check out the blog, learn about that, and give us a follow. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. I'm Cassidy Williams. I'm head of developer experience and education at Remote. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O, on most things. I'm Andy Goodmans. I'm the general manager and VP engineering at Google for databases. And you can find me at goodmans.com. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.